Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Cray and I'm chatting with Jared Locke about his neo-noir film Spears. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Uh, thanks for having me, Gemma. Pleasure to be here. Great. So I just wanted to start with if you could give me a little bit about your background, like how did you get into the world of filmmaking and 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 what what type of films you're passionate about? Um, I suppose as a child of the 80s, um, the films that have made a big influence on me growing up with, you know, movies like uh, uh, Robocop and Predator. And uh, and then at the same time, um, on, you know, on, on BBC at that time would be Movie Drone, which would be showing cult movies. And they were presented by either Alex Cox or Mark Cousins. And so that opened the door then films like uh, Manhunter, uh, you know, by Michael Mann. And so so I've always to stay um, got a taste for something different and off the beaten track, as well as having more mainstream uh, tastes. And then um, I would I think I think every director has this one key special film that they see at an impressionable age, which um, makes them destined then to become a filmmaker. And for me, um, of course, I have to be awkward. I'm going to pick a movie that was a big flop at the time, which was um, uh, in 1895. It was uh, Catherine Bigelow's thriller, science fiction thriller, Strange Days. For some reason, that always, that made massive impact on me at just the right time, because then I was 18 and coming out of school and, you know, at that point to decide what to do I, I think it was very lucky was in 96 and early 1996 there were a whole bunch of film very good films that just had a big impact on me and what happened at the time was it was seven heat casino train spotting strange days 12 monkeys i think that's it so it's just you know that 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 you know with my faith and then, um, I mean, to summarize very quickly, um, I did a diploma in media studies, came out of college, moved to London uh, with the arrogant, um, naive uh, idea of taking over the British film industry, <laughs> though that one small problem, no experience. So it was, fall, uh, you know, find out the hard ways, catch 22 of being a director. You know, so, okay, well, what experience have you got? You know, why should we trust you with, you know, a budget and whatnot? But then in 2003, was lucky enough to land a seven-week internship at a very good advertising agency. And I was there able to do my first music video. And I've done 13 since, and then did seven short films. And now that led me to this uh, Spears, which is my second uh, feature film. And that's pretty much summarizes it. Um, but if I say one thing, because we have to... You know, actually, we assume the people listening to this podcast are people who are starting out in filmmaking or are interested in becoming film directors, producers, or writers. I would say one thing from my background experience is, please, God, you know, make some short films before you even think about taking on a feature film. And it might be a cliche, but it's, you know, you got to learn to walk before you run because... I mean, I, I was still probably a little bit lost on my first feature film, to be brutally honest, because it is such a threshold to cross from a 10-minute short to a two-hour feature that I think every director, I don't care what they say on their first feature, 
don't completely know completely what they're doing. It's like a baptism of fire. Um, but that's what I think anyway. Very interesting, actually, to say. And what were the main leaps that like, you know, that the, the differences in the shoot, the, the piecing it all together, like what were the big jumps from making that short to the feature because it's not like with this one either like I know it's your second but it's not like you didn't bite off more than you could chew there's so many characters and locations <laughs> and like well, I did, I did bite off that I could chew a little bit <laughs> but I think it's good to bite off a little a little bit more than you chew you know I like that quote from David Bowie you know if, if you feel you're in at the deep end a bit and you, your feet aren't quite touching the floor as he said something interesting is going to happen and also it's good to, I mean, if a, if a picture film project was going to be a cinch, what's the point? So I do make a, ro- a, a cross from my own back, you know, uh, I'm a glutton for punishment or something, but, um, but no, um, but sorry to, to answer your question with a big difference. Everything's longer, everything's more complicated, more expensive. You know, the short film is a sprint and then the feature film is a marathon. And, so, and then at the end of it then becomes a big, uh, what also comes as a big shock to you the first time is you're going to have to wake up to the big side of things, yeah. which is the demands of the box office at the cinema, distribution, marketing, advertising, promotion. And if you don't pull your head out of the sand and attack that with as much um, care as you did actually making the film, you're in for you know, you know, you really because I always believe it doesn't matter how good film is, yeah. people haven't even heard about it, they're not going to see it. So you've got to get out there and um, bang the drum and get the it. get the um yeah get the word out about it. What did you? So you were t- in talks with a distributor about this. Actually, do you know what? I'd I'd, I'd rather talk about this in a linear fashion. So you've mm. done your shorts, um, and then you approach this. It was like you just said, it's it's a lot of threads. How was the screenwriting process like? How was it getting that together? Well, I think it was went through about fifteen drafts, which makes the mind boggle. And it was the the, the rewriting kept going right to the last day of principal photography um, now maybe I just can't make my bloody mind up or I just was always trying to push it to make it as good as possible and it's and I'm, I was the writer on this as well so it's so I was I had a lot of hats on my head I'm the writer director editor director of photography now to be honest with you I do not advise any filmmakers listening to this to take on that many hats uh, now if you can write great if you're good behind the camera which I am great but it is a lot to to take on. Now that said, that was the way that got that got the film made, you know, on the budget that it was. But it's not not to wouldn't advise some of these things I've done, but you know, um, that's what I did. So so it was fifteen drafts, and how long did it take you? Like, where did you get the inspiration from? How long did the the process take you? Did you work with a script editor? Did you shop it out to people that you know? I don't believe in script editors. Gonna start the first controversial thing we're gonna say in this podcast. Um, you know, you can get absolutely swamped with feedback then, and then you know your confidence could be knocked, and you don't know after a while if you're if you're up or down. So you're gonna have to have a bit of faith in yourself, I think, and just think that you know what this is. I mean, I let obviously the the producer 
Fala uh, read the screenplay and said, yeah, it's, it's good, it's strong. And she's a very good, uh, voracious reader. And she kept turning the page. And that was the sign it's working. And that's the song. So it's, yeah, it's about getting a good story uh, in short. Um, but uh, how we come up with the idea was uh, the first film was a horror film, Night People. So it was like, okay, let's do something different. And I was already finding I was becoming already pegged as a horror guy. And one producer even said to me, well, sure, all you're good for is horror and science fiction. What are you doing knocking on my door? I mean, there's even... Now, this is all because it just... It's only because I did one horror film and one horror short film, but it was based on the Stephen King story. Got me a lot of publicity. And I think it just... That's me. That's you, you. If you don't watch out, I think directors can come become like actors with their typecast. And it's very hard to... I mean, naturally enough, if you make a splash to one genre, people will say, well, why don't you do another one? Um, so this film being a neo-noirish mystery thriller, it was a whole different kettle of fish. And what I wanted to do was kind of take the structure of William Friedkin's much underrated sorcerer movie from 1977, introduce a character in a different country to start off with and let's get to know them and then bring the characters together at the midway point and then i would say then you know i would certainly have to cite david mamet as an influence for his tricky um you know twisty always con artists you know infused films like the spanish prisoner house of games and my favorite heist um, so I, I think, and then I would say then just take the, the look of, let's say, Michael Mann films like Thief, Manhunter, um, and, you know, Miami Vice and things like that. And, and that's that. And then that, and then finally, then we've got the electronic, heavy electronic score soundtrack as well, because I love electronic music. Um, so I guess that's, you put all those things together. It's a strange mix, but I think it makes it for an interesting thriller. And actually, just while you're on the score, I, I really, really thought it was beautiful and it elevated it so much and it it sit well, that the songs that were chosen were were really gorgeous and, and the mix worked really well. How did you like clear the rights for two hours worth of that? That sounds very expensive. <laughs> well, it, it was, what was it, four songs? Yeah. I think the, I think we were the budget wise we couldn't go, to show you how tight it was couldn't go past three songs. Then finally the final song was a song called "Pixelate" by um, an Irish Egyptian artist called Shafri. And I said to the producer, "Look, I need one more song." And I said, "No way! There's no way! There's no way in hell, Jer. You don't have the budget." And I said, "Okay, okay. Let me just play it for you, and let me just show you the play with the scene, which was in the movie a montage in Berlin." Uh, with two couple, a couple go on and she said okay all right you can run this way let's go so that's the so the a good producer but also had the good sense to see that that song like the other three songs were magic and they nothing was arbitrary about picking them they were all picked very carefully to work with a very specific scene and then finally then what went with it well was Steve Grid's um score and she's a new um you know a new composer this is her first feature film and so she it was all electronic as well and they, and they just all went together 
um, you know, and um, no, clearing the right sum was wasn't expensive because they're all fairly new artists. They were up and coming. I mean, I think in my stupidity, I did at one point consider Depeche Mode, and the quotes were <laughs> quite high. And I think I think the answer was no anyway. But um, so it just gives you. I think I think roughly we're talking about. I, I remember seeing what is about two thousand, three thousand, four thousand quid. If anyone's wondering. You know, that's how much it that said, which is very strange about clearing rights to the song. It can be anything. It's whatever the artist says. If the artist says, look, 10 grand, then that's it. You know, so it's a strange. Um, and some artists are very, very, very picky about um I remember before inquiring and they said, Well, what's the film about? And what exactly is the scene you're gonna use it for? Because naturally enough, um, you know, I wonder maybe, for example. Um, another artist from Donegal, which where I'm from, Enya. I wonder if she ever has, you know, uh, sec, you know, be more second out to anyone licensing her music after her music being used in a torture scene in the David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But if you remember that, they got a big laugh in the cinema. I remember, but I wonder what she thought when she's so when she saw the scene. But no, but um, but just goes to show, yeah, I mean, artists could be very. I mean, rightly so, sense stuff about how their music is used. But I think what you've pointed out is, I think that was the only consensus so far on the film was everyone loved the music. Yeah. Yeah, that everyone agreed on that. The whole but, score and the whole underpinning and it worked so well. And do you think it's your background in music video that you know how to cut, how to, you know, how to, to, to work with music, basically? I, I think so. I think I learned at college, I seem to be one of those directors I do. Um, and I'm trying to be modest, but I do have a knack with music. Uh, really simple as that. I mean, I, I just find it, some find it difficult. I find it very easy to cut images to music and to think in advance how the two should go together. And I suppose to, again, given my age, uh, I mean, I was raised on music videos a lot in my youth, you know, it was a golden time for MTV for the music videos and the budgets in the 90s and it kind of peaked then. Um, directors like David Fincher, for example, you know, broke through um, then later on into feature films. So, it, you know, again, as a child of the 80s, it's ingrained in, in my music videos and um, yeah, I've just been very careful of, uh, when you, you know, when you cut, uh, I mean, I would always have the lyrics printed out it's like it's like your screenplay it's like your guy but also then you're listening to the beat the the, the middle eight the core and you've got to try and just cut it right you know to it and and just just really think about it um and it just but i, I don't mind it i know it's, it's it's just it's just one of those weird knack, knacks i have um so i always have lots of music in the films i think going forward i mean i would love to do a film about the new wave, new romantic scene of London, 1980, I just don't know how the hell to tell a story in it, but it is, the scene does deserve a movie because we've got movies about every other music movement. We've got punk, we got hip hop, we got rock and roll, we got the poor new romantics. I mean, still don't have a movie, but I, I always vow to do it, but also one day maybe I'll, I'll come. So yeah, music very, is very important to me as well. And it, but it, it is beautiful. Um, so so talking back to cost, how does one get you have your 15 draft worth of script? Uh, how do you get the funding then? Where does that come from? Um, 
It was just our, uh, the producer got a loan from the bank. I got a loan from the credit union. Um, there was a little bit of money made from the first film. And other than that, it's there's nothing glamorous about it. It's scrimping and saving and uh, nobody taking a fee. And, um, you know, just all pulling together just to get the damn film made to bring it into existence. So it's, it's not it's not for the faint hearted. Um, it no, is and, risky. And for, I, and this is what I'm saying about biting off like a, a big chunk of like, I mean, you chewed it. It's there. It's on the screen and it's a, it's a fabulous piece put together. Well, but like talk about taking off a huge, big chunk of things because you didn't make things easy. Like that's for for different countries. I should have had my head examined. Now, because the, what they usually tell directors when you're starting out is you're going to do a low budget, no micro budget film. For God's sake, have most of it take place in one location with a couple of actors and, for, and keep it under you know, 90 minutes. And I broke every single one of those rules of my own stupidity or arrogance or, or ambition or whatever you want to call it. But that's what we did. I mean, yeah, you don't. I thought to myself, well, what's the big ideal idea? You know, what's wrong with leaving the country? But I did find out, yes, that is more expensive and more stressful. And um, I mean, for example, in Florence, we've got three or four days to shoot all that. And, you know, we could not afford to ever go back there. We just had one shot at it. So we had to be very prepared. And, uh, you know, and but we did it. We pulled it off. Um, so and it was it was was stressful, Gemma. But same time, it was exciting. It was an adventure. And that's that's what you want when you're making a film too. You want a bit of adventure and excitement, and it's got to be a little bit of risk. Yeah, well, definitely. There's some some planning went in. So, with regards, you said scrimping and saving. What would be the the kind of key things that you felt help keep your budget on track with this? Well, I got a sensible producer by my side, um, Fatima. Um, and sometimes the, the, there'd be, you know, there'd be some very frank discussions and hard arguments. And you'd say, look, Jared, you can't have that. You got, you got to make do. You want three of these things. You got to make do with two. And you, we've got two days to do this and you're going to have to, you know, so there's, there's, and those good, those are conversations that need to happen because directors, you know, it's great talking about your vision and your imagination, but then it is hard then when you're shooting at that, the practicalities and the reality and reality can be very harsh sometimes on making the film but some things have to be a bit compromised and you can't I mean on a film like this you cannot do 50 takes you can't sit on location for an hour to wait for a cloud to pass into frame let supposedly the likes of Michael Cimino or David Lean did you know you'd be dead in the water if you did it on, on a film like this so it's not to say we just do it any old way, but there's there's got to be a balance. I don't believe in 50 or 70 or 100 takes on it, to be honest. I really don't don't understand it. Um, so you've got to get you got to get a move on. So what I'm saying is you need a good producer by your side. That's the first. And you need a good script. That's it's all nailed down. It's on the page. So you've got that guide because God knows when you're shooting a feature film, it does get confusing. Because, of course, you know, we all should it out of sequence. Your first day of shooting could be the middle of the script. Then the next day could be the end. And so, you know, after a while, it's you know. But what's always keeping you right? It's a script. If a good, if you have a good story, you're you always have a map. 
And you, and again, this is it. It wasn't an easy task to do. So you have your you have your script, your meticulously planned out script that you you've gone through with a fine tooth comb. You've your producer gone. You gotta keep moving. You have to cut one of these scenes. They're not gonna get it all in one day, or the weather's not there for this. And then you you're already as the director being the DOP on it, and then trying to you know wear different hats for the production, like. Was there was that difficult because not having like I presume not having like your script supervisor on set going that's not going to line up with this or hmm. <laughs> we didn't even have a script supervisor didn't have a continuity <laughs> person didn't have catering didn't you know didn't have I didn't have an assistant director didn't, you know none of these things and so you you just got to do all those things to yourself and of course sometimes there probably you know there will be mistakes I think there's mistakes anyway. To be honest, on any film, no matter what the budget is, but so the, the wrist watch in a period piece, yeah. like no matter what you're looking, the coffee cup from Game That's of the right. World. Yeah, um, yeah. So the the you know, so it's just yes, yeah, so it it was grueling at times, um, and it just was. I mean, there was time. I mean, in the opening scene, we were up a mountain in a place called Sleeve League at six seven a.m. in the morning. I think I got travel sickness on the way or it was <laughs> nerves or whatever it is. And I just thought at that point, why did I become a film director? But it was okay. We got on with it. And then there, this fog came in. As you remember, you may remember the open scene, there's fog everywhere. That's That was not planned at all. That totally ruined oh, wow. the shot a month ago. And I was cursing that up and down. And then I, I actually thought, you know what? this is actually a happy accident. This looks really cool. And everyone's going to assume I did this on purpose anyway, or I have one hell of a smoke machine. But it was very ominous. And of course, it suited the film. Um, so there are, you know, that's what I'm saying is you can you can plan too much as well. And don't, you can't you can't throw a tantrum if things don't go exactly your way either. I mean, especially in terms of weather. And tell me about the, um, I suppose you'd have to go with the flow, but tell me about the actual shoot. How long was it? The How long, how long did it take you to I get it? I think it might have been around two years, if I remember correctly, which is wow. shocking. It was never supposed to take that long. You know, uh, I mean, COVID played a part in that too. I think it added about six months, five months onto it. Um, but... Yeah, it was a very long, I mean, there was times where you would only shoot for, let's say, four or five days in a month, ran out of money, come back the next month, pick up again for another week. I mean, towards the end, it was getting like that. It was really tight going. And I always compared the film to a house of cards. It really, it could collapse at any moment. But I also knew at a certain point, once we kind of reached past the halfway point, We've got three quarters there. We've got a film. We, you know, but again, it's my fault. I made it so bloody difficult. But we did get there in the end. And you know, as you see, there's the film. Um, but but it was an absolute bitch. But then at the same time, when I look back, I was just trying even to remind myself about the movie. I was looking at the trailer today, and you know, sometimes I'm like, did we make that? <laughs> you know, so you know, it's you know, it looked cool. You know. And and then editing it, putting it together. So, like, I presume there's there's a lot of shoots to get through. There's a lot of like arcs to close off. Like, was there anything that you were like, oh my god, I would have loved to go back and do pickups there for like eight days, or, or were you happy then with what you had? I had that problem on the first film. 
didn't have it on the second one. So maybe, I don't know, is that experience or it's luck? But I think it's experience because I know I, I would like to have had the option on the first film. Like there's about a handful of scenes where I think could have done better there. And you'd like to reshoot, but you've no option to reshoot on that kind of a budget. So it's just tough shit. And also I think too, I had a lot to learn about working with actors because able to be not able to operate a camera is one thing. I mean, you push a button and the camera does what you tell it. It's not so simple with flesh and blood actors who have their own feelings and you can't just troll them a script and say, do that. Okay. Action. And just expect it to be what you're imagining in your head. No, you've got to talk to them. You've got to give them room. And I, I learned personally, the great thing is, and it takes me a while to learn is to shut up and just let them find their way to it. Because on the early short films, I'd say, okay, you sit here and then you move your head here, then you raise your hand here, then you say this line with this emphasis on this word. I drive them crazy. Mm -hmm. And I learned from experience. If you, if what I did was on this one, especially, all our actors are fine actors. Anyway, there's no two ways about it. They were all right for the part. And then, so then the third thing is then is, is for me as a director, sometimes certain to begin with what I mean is like on the first takes, shut up, let them, let's see what they do. You know, that sort of thing. So sometimes you can give them far too much information and you're confusing the hell of them. Sit back, watch them. And I mean, unless they're going way off, there's often you don't need to say anything because they're just so damn, I mean, these are, this cast I have, we're so bloody good. It's just... To be honest, 90% of the time, it's just, to be honest, roll a camera and watch the magic that came off them. Fabulous. And then um, distribution. We were chatting about that a little bit before. Yeah. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about how you're finding that? I mean, it must be, be tough again to, to create a piece of work, knowing all the work that went into it and then getting it seen is, is a whole other kettle of fish and getting it out there. It's as hard, if not harder, than making the film itself. It's a whole different kettle of fish where, you know, it's the business side of things. Uh, the business side of films I don't always particularly care for or like or agree with. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I, as a film fan, I don't always believe the box office is the beginning and end all of what a film's fate or legacy should be, which it often isn't. Anyway, but in terms of distribution, I mean, we had lots of meetings and we came close a few times, but it was the one stickler was there's no famous actors in the movie. And, and that was it. And other than that, there was COVID at the time, because at the time we were in the peak of COVID, it had spooked them all as well. And I was adamant about a cinema release. And I said, no, Jared, not, not in this climate. And you know, to be fair, they had a point. They weren't, they weren't being overcautious. I do, so I do appreciate their point of view and always try to see their point of view. So it was, it was disappointing we didn't get a distributor because we really could have done that help on the marketing and the promotion because we all knew we had a good film. It's just getting the message out to people, um, you know, people who would appreciate this kind of film because I think they would enjoy it, this twisty, turny, stylish, globe-trotting thriller. <laughs> with the Irish flavor, because you don't get that genre over here that often as well. It's nice to exactly right. and, that's what I mean. and, and see the, the, the kind of familiar characters. We've got, a big, we've got a big lack of style in general, I think, Gemma. I mean, we, we just, we've got, and there's a lot of films lately, 
in Ireland, I just find that very bloody miserable and very depressing and very, very grey looking. And I just thought, that said, my film isn't a comedy musical. Um, it is dark, but I also, we tried, it has a sense of humour, albeit a black sense of humour, but still a sense of humour that we don't take ourselves too seriously. But also, yeah, I think style is an underrated thing in movies, you know, of taking that care and attention to have a really, and all the distributors agreed on this, uh, was it was a very snazzy looking film. And that said, if anyone goes to Florence and doesn't make that look good, you need to hang up your viewfinder, to be honest, as a director. I mean, you just you just can't go wrong. Even the graffiti in Florence looks good. And, you know, I, yeah, and Berlin and London, and, and indeed even our own little Donegal, if you go to the right locations, it's a knockout. Um, I mean, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, they came down here to shoot, uh, you know, Luke's, Luke Skywalker's home world that was shot here to give you an idea, a very barren location they went to. Um, um, tell me a little bit again about how, uh, how like you've you've been through Source of the Ringer and you've you've touched Ellie every element of this film. Um, what number one will you take with you to your next film? And two, advice would you have given your younger self about to embark on this film? I thought you were going to say, what would you take to the grave? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I'm sure, well, I'm sure you're not going to say it on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, um, what I would say to me younger myself, I would say still yeah. go ahead and do it. And uh, and now what and what I say to any director listening, any director who's starting out maybe on the first film or the second film like me is, for God's sake, have a bit of ambition. Push yourself, you know, you know, and put your heart into it and, don't expect everyone's going to like it or appreciate it, but by God, make a film that you, you know, I made Spears because I wanted it to exist. It's my kind of film. You know, I, I love neo-noir. I mean, yeah, last night I saw Emily the Criminal for the first time and I thought it was a knockout. So I don't know what it is. I'm just drawn to neo-noir and drawn to, you know, stylish looking films. And, you know, and I, th I think we could, we could do a bit of that. So... What was the first question again? And then the first one is, what are you going to take with you to your next film? So, like, what is your plan now for the next film? What themes do you want to explore? What's the the, the lesson that you'll bring on to that now? Um, well, I've got, because of this film, I've definitely got, as we say, itchy feet. So you want to travel more again. I'd like to go to Japan and film there and, you know, go to any country I haven't been to before. Cause I think I cannot think of anything better than going to a country you've never been to before to make a film, not to go on holiday to make a film. Cause and the way those memories you bring back then last forever cause they're on, on screen. And um, the very first night I'll never forget when we were in Florence and we were standing in the, I think it's called the Piazza del Repubblica and God forgive me if I'm not pronouncing it right, but um, we were standing in the square. I felt a bit out of my depths on the first night in Italy, but we went to look at the location anyway. And then we thought, wow, this is actually going to be, this is going to be fun. This is going to be a good idea. And at that moment, there was a musician playing the theme tune to the deer hunter. And then a romantic part of me was thinking that the director, Michael Chimino's ghost, maybe was looking over us and saying, okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> I mean, kismet, <laughs> definitely. That's yeah. meant to be. Yeah. But um, what lessons, I'll tell you a big lesson is, I learned, I've learned now just to tell other directors is, there's one thing you shouldn't rush. 
and that is be very careful of how you cast your film. And I think Alan Parker put it well. He said there is, you know, excuse my language, there's nothing that will bollocks up a film faster than casting the wrong actor. And I'm sure you can think now, Gemma, of films you've seen where there's an actor in the movie who's a perfectly good actor, but for some reason just isn't right in the part that you're, and you, and you think, I don't, I don't buy him in this role. Yeah. And it's a hard thing to detect but I always I've learned now to go to have patience which is not my strong suit but by God you've got to have patience with casting and to go with your gut there's nothing scientific about it there's no logic to my casting decisions in this film I can tell you it was just all gut and I knew they were right when you know when they did their screen tests and everything so it's but that's that's a thing that um, locations and music it's all very important too but by god the casting is and I, and I think this is certainly the best cast project ever because I think it maybe you might agree even our little supporting actors who just had one or two scenes there, there wasn't nobody was nobody was a weak link on this one there was great chemistry there was great yeah. chemistry then in the interactions there was a lovely like especially even the buddy the buddy yeah. dynamic for for the middle section of the film like there was a lovely interaction there it felt very natural I enjoyed spending time in that world and, and the dialogue just felt like it had a kind of you really felt like they reached a, a kind of a, a subtext and 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 a, that's where the humor I think really landed for me where I was like do you know what like in another film where everything is taken too on the nose and and everyone is like you know too overly serious but then there's people having a bit of crack in a car I'm like no matter where you are people are gonna like have a bit of banter and I, I enjoyed that then and and the kind of the the relationships within the 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 double crossing world where you know it's nice as well and it's nice the way you flip it and I don't want to give too much away but it is it's very enjoyable to watch um so where can we see it that's the well, you can you can rent it now it was had a limited cinema release uh maybe too limited for my taste but at the same time, I'm still very grateful we got into three cinemas, uh, but now you can rent it um, on Amazon if you're in the UK or the US, um, and hopefully there'll be more territories added to that somewhere um, down the line. Yeah. And we'll make sure to link to everything um, in the description. So uh, thank you so much for chatting with us. That was so interesting. It's been lovely chatting to you, Gemma.